0: welcome to a sonic talk special we've got a special guest because it's a special sonic talk uh, i want to introduce you to uh, the head honcho over at Spectrasonics, the uh, kind of bit of a bit of a uh, a mogul in the sound design and synthesis world uh, mr eric Persing. how are you eric
1: good to see you nick happy Doing great. new
0: year happy new year and happy christmas and all of those things i hope you had Thank some time you. off happy
1: new year to you. did happy you get some new time
0: year. did you get some time off
1: we did yes it was good always working but uh, you know take a little time off it's good
0: because in the states the uh the christmas thing isn't quite as uh, you don't draw it out quite as long as we do in the uk i don't think so uh um i'm guessing probably christmas day and boxy day but it's been a hell of a year for you i mean not only have you introduced omnisphere 2 but all of your instruments 64 bit the new delivery method how are things
1: good it has it's been an amazing year i mean by far our most successful year yet and getting omnisphere 2 out and the response has been just crazy it's it's been awesome really
0: i can imagine that. i mean you know something like this obviously big challenge because you know you've got all of the success of omnisphere 1 which was kind of did everything pretty much and had a massive sound library i mean how do you approach topping something like that where do you kind of start do you have a little notebook where you think oh i want it to do this i want it to do that or do you kind of sit down and with the team and kind of blue sky it? how does it work
1: well we do um it's a combination of things we're we're working on we're working on new sounds and new features and new ideas new instruments all the time so it's it's something that's it's continuously continuously happening. So it's not so much like um, uh, we get like because there's so many things that that we can do, uh, but we can't do all at once. So we're <laughs> we're working on <laughs> uh, many things that we would love to do. It's like well, that's not going to make it into this version. So um, so we'll we'll be. Uh, dreaming of things, and then we'll eventually it'll find its way into a a, a new version. But yeah, it, it was a big challenge because there was so much in Omnisphere One. Uh, so we we kind of approached this one with um, from like a bullet point right. standpoint, where we would we just looked at like okay, what would be just the killer set of features that you know everybody would love that we want, and um, and then we worked every day off of that. That uh, that bullet point list until and then, you know some things moved around some things had to get take, taken off other things came up at the last minute that were really exciting and um, yeah so that's it's it's kind of that that sort of approach but it's it's pretty fluid and I'm, it, it changes a lot yeah. You know
0: and you do it very differently don't you because i mean lots of software companies kind of do these tiny little it- iterations and incremental releases and add a little bit here but you kind of you've always done it this way where you've just gone big every time rather than kind of do little little feature creep stuff it seems to be much more your style to kind of come out with here's a bunch of new stuff so it creates a, a longer space but then i guess you've got so much stuff in there for people to find and uh, discover that it's going to take them a little while to suss it all out right
1: yeah it is pretty different it's we're uh well, I think we swim upstream a little bit <laughs> um, compared to what everybody else uh, does. So it's it's challenging to do it that way, um, but we we do want to each each release to be a major event, uh, made something huge, and um, and then at the same time we're also we also do you know uh, additional patches and and of course lots of free updates yeah. st- too, and
0: libraries and stuff and and that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, the the we don't have, it's interesting, we only have three instruments. You know, we've, we've, we've had three instruments since uh, 2002. I've
0: got a little so screenshot here. So we've got Atmosphere 2, Stylus, Omnisphere, uh, uh, Stylus, and Trillion. So, yeah, there they are, and they're, all their glory on the spectrosonics.net website, right?
1: Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's interesting that we, you know, we've, we've kept refining those, those three and, um, whereas in that same time period, you know, you think that's, that's a long, that's a long time. i like, said, what, 15 years? Yeah. Uh, that's a long time. Uh, what our competitors have released, uh, there's been many, many things released and many things discontinued, but we kind of look at it as, as, uh, almost more like the way a DAW company would, where, you know, once we, once we have established a, you know, we don't, I, I don't feel like we need to make zillions of different synthesizers. Sure. We've a really great one and a great framework. And there's so much we can do to build up upon that. Um, we don't necessarily need ten different synthesizers, as long as you know the interface makes sense and, and it's not it doesn't get too complicated to use. And that's really where the big challenge comes in is how do you how do you put that much stuff uh, into one instrument and have it make sense and have it be friendly uh keep it keep it accessible and where you don't just get lost uh and that's that's a that's probably the biggest challenge of yeah uh,
0: i can imagine that that's be uh, a, a lot of head scratching uh speaking of synthesizer i noticed behind you there you've also got three instruments yourself uh, which are lined up well we won't count the uh, marimba kind of thing because that's not electronic <laughs> at least i don't think it is it so is, uh, is that it is, is that's it, a, it's, it's got it, pickups it's
1: like it has pickups in it and has its own preamp and yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a custom-made marimbula. It's a, like a gigantic uh, bass marimba. Oh, nice or, uh, marimba, but a uh, kalimba. It's like a bass kalimba.
0: So, where are you now? Is this kind of your 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 own private synth cave?
1: Uh, this is uh, this is a Spectrasonics. This is uh-huh. one of the rooms we have here.
0: Wow. So, uh, is that a System Fifty Five to your? Uh, I guess that would be to your uh-huh. right.
1: Yes, indeed, that- it's uh, a wonderful one. It's been used on lots of uh, famous records, Earth, Wind and Fire, and Michael Jackson, and all kinds of stuff. It's one of the originals, and it's it's awesome. It's an oh, awesome. That was going to be my next
0: question. That's an original original. So that is that's oh, yeah. saying something right there. And then I can. I'm pretty sure I can see a Jupiter eight. Yes, is that an eight.
1: uh uh-huh. yes, that's, that's, that's my eight. And it's, and it's mided and modded and stuff. I've had it for a long time.
0: And is that a wasp deluxe?
1: it is one of the few I think there was only about a hundred made
0: that it's so a very uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a lovely looking instrument, isn't it i always I always uh got really excited by those because the the size because the little thing just was was cute, but it always it was made of that plastic that creaked when you move it like a kind of old yeah. school lunchbox exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly yeah, and it's fun that it has a built in speaker too you know just having a synth that that that's you know you can turn on and just Start making noise with it's pretty great. So we have uh, all kinds of hardware instruments around us, all kinds of real instruments around us all the time, wherever we are working here. Because we always want to be reminded, you know, of what uh, what our goal is and what you know, especially on instruments like these, where the sonically they're really you know very very special. And computers still, you know, there's a there's a significant sound difference um, between you know the Moog behind me and all software. It's, sure. we still have a ways to go before we really get that and it's easy to be because the software stuff sounds so great it's easy to be lulled into um, you know becoming complacent or it's it's good enough we don't ever want to have that good enough kind of feeling it's always got to be what's you know what's the ultimate that, that's that a really can...
0: interesting approach i mean i must admit whenever i'm reviewing uh, not just software i don't do a lot of software but synthesizers i've got a few instruments here that i kind of occasionally switch back on and just kind of remind myself what that extra third of an octave down below sounds like or what that range sounds like it's, it, it really is very surprising sometimes the difference between the two the the two you know the, the real thing i suppose if that's if that's not a, a kind of weird way of looking at it because everything's kind of real if it's made of electronics it's and that- software yeah.
1: yeah yeah it's it's interesting that concept of of what's real what's digital and because um because really when we're comparing it like we can't when we're talking about these kind of differences in comparison uh, those aren't differences that we can do in the digital domain, and, and I, by that I mean I, I can't listen to these instruments digitally. I can't I can't put them into a, an interface or into a computer. We we literally patch these into speakers, like or just through right. like, straight wire mixers and and that kind of stuff. So it's like really really pure. That's the part that that hasn't really been. Um, we're not quite at that point yet digitally. It gets closer and closer every year, though. It um, really so,
0: does. I mean, and the interesting thing is is because, because I mean, rewind it a little bit. I mean, when you started out, uh, you know, a lot of your stuff was sample-based. That's where you kind of saw your first uh, opportunity to kind of go, um, go solo, I suppose, or at least break out from working for other people. And yet mm-hmm. now, you know, now you've got your own, the steam engine and the uh, Sage engine, you know, which give you that kind of additional control that you have how, how how tightly are you into the nuts and bolts of what's going on under the hood of those things or do you just kind of prefer to have people make it so and you just kind of yes no yes no i mean i imagine you're fairly hands-on kind of guy right
1: yes uh but i'm not a coder so i don't i don't uh i don't code myself sure but um basically what you know what i i uh, we got into the business uh, doing sounds and of course that's 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 where my expertise is and that's where I, I came from. But really what i what I loved doing with Roland was having that opportunity to actually get to even though I'm not a, a, a hardware designer, I got to influence a lot of the designs at hardware uh, at uh, Roland in in their hardware sense and sequencers and all of that fun stuff that uh, is now considered vintage and classic
0: (laughs) um it's funny it's it's funny that, not it the way that uh, kind of it's in the same way that i i always remember when i was a kid i mean just the analog and the the, digital and kind of what's supposed to be but when i was a kid or just starting to get into studios ssl was seen as the sort of the 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 poor relative of the the big analog consoles purely because of the recall and stuff and now you know it's the top of the tree it's really interesting the way that things cycle around and the perceived sound it's how how i suppose it's just how relevant the sound of something is at the now or for how long it remains relevant in many ways
1: oh yeah absolutely but i love that i love that experience of of being able to in you know actually get to design instruments but of course with roland i i didn't You know, I couldn't have my own way. No, sure. It was was a large team, and so I got to play on that team, and I got to do some pretty significant things, but really the ultimate dream for me was to be able to make my own synthesizers, make my own instruments, and when I realized that that was possible with software uh, synthesis and software sampling, that... That was like just a revelation that I, I didn't I wasn't gonna need a hundred million dollar factory like Roland has you know to make sure. to make uh, instruments but I, we can just we can we can dream them and they can become a reality so so I'm very involved in terms of the, the design and the testing and the feature specs and um, uh, er- kind of everything but the hardcore coding uh, I do I do uh, I'm, I'm very involved in in directing the the rest of that. And um, and I I enjoy it. It's fun, and it's it's uh, it's really interesting working with our software team, and and um, that was a big change too in the company was was when we actually brought on our own team uh, of software developers. Instead of uh, licensing, uh, the technology. and I can
0: imagine that right back, you know, back at the beginning, you know, it's such an uncharted territory. I mean, maybe we'll come back to that in a bit. But I mean, what what was interesting to me is kind of how how this route started for you because you started off your your, um, your your what what's your sort of core instrument? What was the thing that you first learned and that started you off on your musical journey?
1: Uh, well, I started on on uh, trumpet, right. and uh, my my dad is a. Uh, uh, I grew up with, he, with him being a choral director, and uh, he plays all the instruments. And, and so um, so I learned a lot. Uh, I was around music all the time. And, but then just that something about sound. I was more interested in sound, I think, than I was even in um, uh, pure music. Uh, music is what drives everything, and, and that's the goal. I mean, music, music is, the, is what it's all about. But being fascinated with with sound, I, I had a. Uh, I was thinking about this morning. I there was this amazing sound as I was coming out uh, on the way over here, in the trees. There was um, this huge flock of green uh, wild parrots that uh, that flies around our area sometimes, and the sound it was making was just it was awesome, and. Um, you know, it just sounded like all these like thousands of like squeaking oscillators, and like it, it was completely natural. And and you know, I, I didn't have my full recording rig, but I got a do little you, bit on my. Do, iPhone. You t- do you
0: do you carry stuff around with you to kind of capture moments of, uh, like audio uh, scratch pad for, well, I, for for sound ideas?
1: <laughs> after this morning and not getting a, like a hi fi version of that, uh, I think I'm going to start doing that because uh, I, there's been a number of moments like that. But anyway, all that. All that to say is that that's kind of that that sort of stuff really gets me going. And so, as I was learning piano, I was as I was as interested as what was going on inside the piano and playing inside the piano and and uh, checking out what what would happen if you if you put different objects inside the piano. When I was a little kid, you know, uh, so a bit
0: prepared piano kind of action, right? Yeah,
1: like that was as interesting to me as learning the notes and learning. Uh, everything else so so for me it's all connected you know it's the sound and music and and uh creating creating an instrument that makes sound uh, but it's it's fun it's definitely fun
0: so you uh, you started off more as a player i mean that's when you kind of got introduced to the studio environment and i'm guessing that was probably where you first began to see electronic instruments and instruments that were perhaps not so readily available is that correct
1: um well, I, I was interested in since uh, really early, uh, and, and it was, it's interesting. The, the, I saw a picture of Tonto, the Tonto synthesizer, sure. and, uh, when I was uh, about 11 years old. And, and it turns out that the, um, the building that I, I'm in, that our, our building, is actually where Tonto was. Like, uh, this building belonged to uh, Bob Margalev of, of Tonto. Uh, just purely coincidence, you know, kind of kismet, and uh, so um, so I, I was just fascinated with 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 this the, all of this, you know, yeah, <laughs> this, this incredible world of of synthesis, and so every moment I had, uh, I would go to the music store and I would try synths, and it drove me crazy that I couldn't figure out how to make them work or or uh, shut off the sound, you know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, Back in the old days, you know, you, you could have an, a, an amplifier that would continually go. And so, um, yeah, so, I, so that was, uh, I was always fascinated by it, even, even though it was inaccessible to me. And then as I got, um, as I got more into playing and, and uh, I went through college and, and recording and stuff, I, I ended up at a music store uh, right around the time that MIDI uh, had just happened. And we had no customers. We had um, literally every keyboard in the world. Like, we had everything. It was the greatest store ever. But there was no customers because you could see it from the freeway. But you couldn't actually, um, there was like could another figure. store
0: that could had the figure. same
1: address. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you couldn't actually, like, you couldn't actually get there. So, um, so all we did all day was figure out uh, these instruments and figure out uh, like how to connect the, these things. And, and back then the, the knowledge level in terms of MIDI was was pretty um, uh, arcane and, and brand new and, and mysterious. Uh, like even what a sequencer was for or, <laughs> or did or how you connected a MIDI sequencer in a drum machine, things that we take for granted now. Um, so we were actually the first, um, since we had so much time, we were like the first people in the United States that that actually figured out how to connect a whole room full of MIDI gear and have it all trigger off of uh, it was an MSQ 700. And so um, normally the the dealer or the manufacturers send their their reps uh, to train the stores. And so what would happen is because we had so much time when this reps would come to our store we would train them right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because we knew the gear really well, because we had no customers, we just would we we just make music all day, and, and then when you finally get a customer, we'd say, "Man, come on back!" And we'd have this incredible uh, demo set up, and we hit you know hit the play button, and had this huge PA system, and blew people away, uh, and we'd make you know one sale,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but they buy everything, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, no, people couldn't afford all of it,
0: but <laughs> no. um,
1: the store went away pretty fast. But, but that's how I got recruited for Roland, because um, Roland started sending all of their people in the country. Uh, th- they came to be trained by us at the store. What? And so um, the president, Tom Beckman, the president of Roland, um, he heard about what was going on. he said, well, what's going on at the store in, in down in Orange County? And um, so, so he came down, and I gave him this big demo, and he said, "Well, why don't you come demo at the NAM show?" And uh, so that's how I, I I got to to demo at the show for wow. Roland. So
0: what was that first show like? Because I mean, now it's uh, it's very uh, I, I, I'm thinking it's bigger now, right? And it's more chaotic, or maybe I'm wrong there. But I'm guessing when it started out, I, I guess that what would that been eighty four, eighty five, sometime around then.
1: Uh, that would have been eighty two. Right. actually 82 83 i think i can't i can't remember exactly but um yeah well at that time the summer show was the big one right and so it, it was uh, in chicago and so that was uh it was chicago and anaheim and anaheim was the little one right and chicago was the big one and so um but it was it was a it was a mind-blowing experience uh, and there were so many things uh, revolutionary you know trend-setting things that were introduced um by roland at that show it was the the first, it was the introduction of the SBX80. It was like the first, um, you know, time code yeah. synchronization thing. Um, the MSQ700 was still brand new. And uh, all the whole concept of MIDI modules was <laughs> introduced. So all that, the MKS80, or, yeah, the MKS80, MKS10, I think like the very first um, modules, and the master keyboard, the octopad like drum controllers uh it was no, all that, that
0: same i mean that's a, that was quite i mean now we, we, you say we take that for granted but that's actually quite a visionary thing that happened there i mean was that something that you walked into or you were involved in this in this in the in the way that kind of went together because in many ways you know the the notion of having the master keyboard and the modules really made a lot of sense and it started to kind of work for people because because we didn't have so much room and you know people were touring it i guess there's all sorts of reasons why they would want to go that route right
1: Yes. And, and uh, so, I, yeah, I was coming into really uh, this incredible time at Roland where, uh, you know, MIDI was just, it was just starting. And uh, so, so being able to, to, to be part of that. And so I, I got hired right after the show and started working for Roland US. And then very quickly, you know, that the biggest problem they had was um, the, the sounds that came in the keyboards were so bad. <laughs> that it was really hurting sales and so um you know compared to if you buy a profit five or an Oberheim, you know i think the first preset on a jupiter 8 uh was a cow it was like a, <laughs> Smart.
0: a yeah like, <laughs> <The second laughs> just what one, everybody like, needs yeah, yeah
1: like <laughs> a cat and then the, the, it, it was like basically sounds that the engineers thought were funny wow. and that's why that's why you see all those names on the old roll and synthesizer funny cat yeah. And all those, those are all the engineers just love that stuff they're not musicians, they're just basically, so they really needed somebody um, that could sort of represent, uh, explain, you know, work with the Japanese on, on getting a more Western approach to the sounds and sounds that would, would, would appeal to, uh, to musicians in, in, in Western countries. And so, so that you was just, you you fell was, in
0: right at that right time then. I mean were you were you emulate it? and what were you doing were you sort of emulating sounds that you wanted to hear or were hearing in uh, productions that you were hearing over here or were you kind of just going I know what, I were you kind of inventing sounds from scratch
1: Both it was it was uh you know what, trying trying to emulate acoustic instruments you know with yeah. analog synthesizers and uh, which is you know hilarious to think about it now as is Complete waste of time, uh, and then uh, yes, of course, like being inspired by sounds that that uh, that were happening already, and then being inspired by the technology and coming up with new sounds, and and that and so that that became my, my role is is kind of being that interface uh, to between the Japanese and and um, Western countries. And representing Western taste, and getting to you know have a say in, in what the direction of these instruments were, and then I, and then doing you know doing all of the the uh, sounds for the for the instruments, wow. and so that was uh, that was such an awesome gig, and and uh, I did it for a long time, and it, and it was so much fun. And, I'm, uh,
0: I'm, I'm guessing some of those instruments were, were, you know, they were utilizing new concepts in terms of DCO, whatever, what have you. But at that stage, it was still pretty much uh, subtractive analog synthesis, you know. So they were kind of fairly yeah. bad. And, and this is something that's really odd for me. I mean, I, I recently reviewed the jpo 8 which is of the new boutique. Yeah. And uh, Dave Spears lent me his Jupiter 8. And I thought, wow, I've never played one of these. And one thing that really yeah. struck me about it was quite how basic it is the the jupiter 8 it's actually not a terribly complex synthesizer and, no and and there are no effects and it's really right. odd in many ways and i'm guessing you were working in a lot of ways with 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 lots of dry stuff so i mean the, the oh the, yeah so that must have been even more challenging because effects didn't really you know you might have a delay pedal if you were lucky back then wouldn't you or, or right. some kind of or a tape echo or something
1: yeah so you, so you have sounds with a lot of release and stuff to try to <laughs> simulate echo and <laughs> reverb and stuff like that but uh yeah it was a it was a dry world
0: back then <laughs> a dry world but then of course the the, the um, uh, from then i mean guessing you know the the uh the the rom uh sound set started to come in and the sample plus synthesis uh, engines were really kind of this i mean it was really pretty exciting the m1 and the d50 and all of those things which really right. opened things up i mean at the same time also made things much more complicated to to operate, or to program. So I'm guessing your services were even more necessary because not many people enjoyed programming through an LCD screen in those days.
1: Yeah, and, and by that time, um, because Roland, you know, was was really uh, in serious competition with tr- really trying to compete with with Yamaha because, of course, they had the DX7, and and that was just so huge. So, and we were we were trying to explain to people why analog synthesizers were good. And and why analog drum machines uh, were were good when there's a Lin yeah. or yeah. <laughs> I remember trying to a lot of people forget that the 909 was a, a massive failure, uh, and of course it went on to become probably the biggest that and the 808 the biggest drum machines ever.
0: Well, both of them uh, really, and and the and the 303. I mean, you know, these are the things. Yeah. That, but again, I think that's probably down to the perhaps the Japanese approach to marketing because of the way. It was considered. This is what you we think it would be a good idea, but it was kind of out of step with things at the time, perhaps.
1: Yeah, it was out, and it was also um, all of those ideas were based on emulative ideas, right. and and they were there were a sort of a goofy a goofy attempt at emulating you know, it, the three or three is supposed to sound like a bass guitar. Yeah, uh, it is an utter failure at that, but it's amazing in its own right and uh so yeah so the the i remember the japanese were trying to get us to sell the 909 as a jazz drum machine (laughs)
0: because (laughs) i guess i guess hot swing like
1: you know the symbols were were nice (laughs) (laughs) so um so anyway so there was so we were completely in an analog world but we had you know dcos and things like that and and um so so I was with Roland during that whole time and um, uh, working on you know, making the sounds for the Junos and the Jupiters and and uh, the J- all the JXs and all wow. that stuff. I must have. Uh,
0: were, I've got to ask you, when was the first time that you heard one of your sounds like right up front in a big record?
1: Uh, let's see. The first time was probably... It was probably um, David Foster's stuff because he was using the he was using those JX8P voices mm-hmm. and soundtrack in, on the JX8P. That was the first soundtrack. That was also a pretty popular sound.
0: That was so, you too. Was uh, it the, that's was that a, a, is it a fifth or a fourth? I couldn't re- I can never remember, but it it made that's it on through... the D
1: fifty on the right. D fifty. It's fifth on the on the JX8P. It's more of a it's more of just like a really deep drone or right. deep ad it's a different it's a different sound but it has the same same i like that name so i <laughs> kept using it um but the, probably the weirdest thing uh was was what i did for the um the alpha junos because um it was years years and years later we were working i think on the uh the jx i uh, know the um the jv 1080s and and all the all the jv stuff and we were getting a lot of pressure from the European countries to have more European sounds, and they kept talking about this this Hoover sound. Right. And and I was like, who? What's a Hoover sound? Like, what what is that? Yeah. And because that's not a term that we that's not a term you heard in the states.
0: The vacuum cleaner.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So, I'm like, so, so they're like, and I'm getting this. I'm getting faxes and telexes and stuff from. From, from Japan you know you got we got to get more Hoovers. I'm like I got to find out what this Hoover thing is so anyways and it was kind of the early early days of a bulletin boards and yeah early internet stuff and I remember um researching and trying okay like, what is this what is this Hoover and and I hear it and so I hear this sound I'm like okay so that that's the sound and so I'm looking up kind of just where it came from, and I find this early website that's that's dedicated to the Hoover, and it says that the sound is made by the Alpha Juno, right. and I'm like, huh, and it's this preset called what the, right, and I'm like, that's my sound, <laughs> 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 and so here I was, and I was getting, and I was getting all this flack for not create, you know, that, that our stuff wasn't European sounding enough, and I, <laughs> it was the greatest thing to be able to say. Actually, I made that Hoover sound. That's the, that's Brilliant. our sound. It's it's actually something we did a long time ago. But we but I did it as a joke. It was just a, it was like a joke sound I put at the very end um for the Japanese engineers who like all these humorous sounds. And so I didn't get the whole Hoover reference because that's what you say in the UK. Yeah. In the UK, you say that's a vacuum cleaner, uh, and which is odd because I actually used to fix vacuum cleaners.
0: Now that and, now we're starting to get really spooky.
1: It's very weird, yeah.
0: So uh, at this same time, uh, you were you know at the same time as designing sounds uh, for uh, presets and what have you, you were working on sessions and working on records as well. Is that right? At the same at the same kind of period.
1: Yeah. So that so that's essentially so um, so after that whole period with the with the JXS and Junos and Jupiters and all that stuff I was doing with Roland um, and kind of starting to work on the the samplers the. The S50s and of course all the drum machines and stuff. Um, that's when the big push for the you know this is the D50 is going to be the big the big deal. You know this is yeah. this is going to yeah. be our our answer to to Yamaha. And so they they brought me over and a uh, couple of other guys and and uh, they they played it for us. And and after this long introduction, you know, telling us about the technology and how it was going to change the world, and then they played it for us. And it, it was the worst sound we ever heard. <laughs> it sounded like worse than like a Yamaha Porta sound. Like right. it was so cheesy sounding. And um, so we were just sweating. We were like, "This is not going to fly." But there was this PCM part of it. And that okay, well, maybe we can beef up the PCM part, and we can make we can turn it into something interesting if if, it, if you know if we do some creative stuff with that. And so. Um, so I started working really hard on you know creating those wavetables and the, all those samples and all those little attacks and that kind of stuff. That and, must uh, have
0: been really challenging. Just due, I mean because the the amount of ROM and the uh, ra- and that you were dealing with. I mean, you know, you, we're talking about tiny little fragments, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's only uh, I think I think the entire I think it's five twelve k or something is all that stuff fits in or wow less than, less than a megabyte, and um, so. Anyway, um, so I got to be part of that whole that whole journey from the very very beginning, and basically as as we were, um, as the sample side was starting to come together, the software side also came together, and it was really fascinating to see that something that sounded so horrible, like suddenly with an up with a software update, you know of, of the the in, in the
0: right the, the firmware the, yeah.
1: The, yeah the firmware. Um, it could radically change. It could, and suddenly, you know, the chorus sounded great, and before it sounded horrible. And so that was a that was my first experience of of like wow, like with with just the right coding and the right back and forth uh, between the coders and the musicians, you can really take something from being absolutely awful to being something really special. And um, so that so that. Uh, anyway I, I, I got to be the person that introduced the d50 and I, I did you know a lot of the sounds for it a lot of the classic ones and I was involved in it all the way from the beginning and so my first um, uh, time uh, showing the d50 in the United States uh, I think the front row was literally it was Quincy Jones David Foster um, y- you know it was just everybody like Big when shots. Carl- yeah. yeah. It was like, it was the who's who of, of LA recording and, um, synthesizers. And it, it was amazing. And so all I had to do was you know play that digital native dance, um, sound and, and, you know, people were, that's all it took kind of back then was a couple of, uh, a couple of deep notes and you were sold. Um, but anyway, that, that I, I had the only D50, uh, In the United States for about a year so So, yeah yeah, so all those sounds were like my personal sounds and um, I was very attached to them and then uh, I got as a result I got called to do uh, I got I got called in to do a lot of big sessions and that's kind of how my that's kind of how my so were you were you
0: playing in those sessions or was it primarily a kind of so you got you you were the kind of the synth the d50 player effectively right
1: not not necessarily D fifty. It was it was um, that. But that was the that was the the thing that sort of got me in the door. And then I I bring my whole rig with all, all my synths and you know PPGs and all that all, all the stuff that was being used at the time. And um, so yeah, I, so I got to I got to that's how I sort of got my foot in the door. And then I would I would program sounds and um, also play and also arrange and. And that's how I got into arranging and producing. And so I'm guessing
0: stuff. those those sort of chops. I'm mean, I'm I, I mean, just thinking back. You know, I mean, programming sounds for the D50, for instance. Did mm-hmm. you have other tools that allowed you to program them, sort of more deeply or more, with a bigger overview than uh, than just through the front screen? Or was were you were you doing it all via the interface that it had as well?
1: Uh, well, we had the, um, the the PG1000. You know, the right. the program for it. So that was a. Uh, That's a lot better than using the the, uh, that little screen. But no, there wasn't a lot of other um, there wasn't a lot of other tools, um, and it would it would change all the time. You know, there was there's some sounds like you you can see on the internet. There's a few um, sounds that I played. I think at the Music Mesa introduction of the D50, if those videos, I think I've seen those videos on the on the internet. There are a couple of sounds in there that you can't actually make with a real D50. Wow. That you could only make with that prototype because they changed. I think they had to change the LFO structure or so. I mean, I'm, you know, me and only a couple of other people are probably the only people that notice the difference. But uh, I, yeah, get, it, I, I, it I guess what I,
0: was, what I was getting at, really, because, I mean, those kind of big sessions, it's not so much the same now because obviously lots of people have their own facilities. But when you're brought yeah. into a session like that with all your stuff there is a time pressure going on because a either the artist might be coming in at five and wants to hear what you've done or, you know, it's 2000 bucks a day just for the studio space or whatever. Sure. I mean, were you, uh, were you part of what you were doing because you were so fluent in it was a, was the speed with which you could kind of work. I mean, is was that something that kind of helped you move through those kind of sessions and, and oh, reach yeah. all of those people?
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, being able to make sounds quickly. Uh, and uh, something that really helps with that is because I came up and I was playing live without uh, any programmable synthesizers. Right. So uh, very few people have that. Well, I mean, there's actually more of it going on now with the Euro rack stuff and everything, but there's something about you really need to know synthesis and you really need to know your instruments and how to create sounds quickly. If you have to do it in the middle of a song <laughs> and yeah. you're with one hand, you're, Programming, you know, you're programming the next part, sound, while you're playing the other part. It's uh, it's pretty challenging. <laughs> uh, and and pr- you know, when you have an instrument that's programmable and you have presets, uh, it's just it's a it's a lot easier. So I think that helped me a lot in terms of um, honing my ability to create sounds quickly and um and i love i love people i love i love being around people and it's fascinating to me when someone has something in their head um it's a real challenge to try to figure out okay how can i how can i create what's in their head uh and also show them something that maybe they haven't heard or thought of and so i love i love that aspect so so doing sessions and creating doing sound design sessions and and working as a synthesis that that was a real it was a natural uh, sure. progression
0: for me. do you do you still get to do that kind of thing or is that you know i mean now you're um, sitting in your uh, uh swivelly chair at spectrasonics looking down from the uh, 99th floor no doubt do, 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 do <laughs> you uh, do you get do you still get to do that kind of fun stuff in the studio for other people and collaborate in those kind of ways or is that something you don't have so much time for now
1: i don't have a lot of time for that for like for being on call as a session player uh, but I do, I, I still do music for sure. And, I, and, and, you know, when people, it's more like, uh, you know, artists that I have a strong connection to or my own stuff, you know. That, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's critical to be, keep going musically and keep, um, keep being creating and, and, and making sure that you're connected to what's happening musically um but yeah i don't have a lot of i don't have i don't have time to do not so much the, time for that i'm guessing yeah. uh,
0: because legendarily also he worked on the some of the jackson sessions for uh for quincy jones and i've subsequently watched a couple of uh life story documentaries about quincy jones who is the most mind-blowing individual i think i've uh, musically Absolutely. where his journey his journey from like the ghetto to to you know Boulay, and all it just really blows my mind i mean that must that must have been really exciting times
1: oh yeah absolutely yeah and and when you're when you're around somebody like that that thinks so big um and you know they give you a they give you a challenge it's the Quincy's very into that like he'll he would come in and, and say all right I need the I want the uh greatest bass sound in the world I'll be I'll be back in an in an hour <laughs> And uh, how this how is did like you do? After all, after all the amazing bass sounds that have been done on all the records he's produced, and you're like, okay, what kind of bass sound or what? So it's it's a great uh it's a great challenge, and, and yeah, he's an inspiring guy. Absolutely, those those, those sessions were mind blowing. um Being around all of that, it was. And
0: again, I mean, again, did you get? Were you involved in some of the creation of some of those signature sounds on those records as well? I mean, does that? Yeah. you think back and just go, yeah. yeah.
1: That was. I, uh, I'm going to
0: ask you. I'm going to ask you to drop some tracks now and tell me what 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 was yours.
1: Um, well, I did a lot of stuff on the Bad record, right. so um, so a lot of the, uh, you know, the a uh, lot of the stuff on Man in the Mirror and right. um, Dirty Diana and 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 Bad, the song Bad. Um, but it, but there's so much. That those those tracks are so dense. Like yeah. there's so many people that worked on them. It's it's difficult to um, you know there were teams, multiple teams of of synth groups that were working on things. So it wasn't it certainly wasn't only me. Um, but yeah, I got to you know there there are certainly uh, certainly moments where it's like yeah, that's that's that's, that's my one. part. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a neat thing. I had all. <laughs> Speaking of the D50 and Michael Jackson, um, I had this, it was the craziest experience uh, meeting him because it was, it was this, um, it was amazing, you know, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm getting to work on this and it was after Thriller, you know, so he's the biggest star in the world sure. and I know I'm basically, you know, I'm going to get a chance to meet him, but it's going to be like meeting Elvis or something, right? It's it's like at that, that sort of level, you know? Yeah. So I'm completely like, I don't know what I'm going to say or, um, you know, so, um, so my friend, uh, Larry Williams, who, who got me the gig, he, he said, well, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, come on, I'll, I'll introduce you to Michael. And so, so Larry says, um, Michael, this is, this is Eric Persing. Uh, he, he's, he's one of the guys, you know, who designed, designed the D 50 and, uh, so Michael grasps my hands and he just kind of freezes. And he's he's just like, How did you do that? <laughs> and and i and, and he's like just he's like blown away. And I'm I'm like, I'm eating Michael Jackson. Wow. It was the strangest experience of the world. I was uh it was just among many, many bizarre things that happened in those sessions. But um that was that was uh but sweetest guy, you know, amazing, great amazing. memory, I'd imagine. Yeah. Oh yeah, so,
0: yeah. So, so I mean, moving on from that, I mean, that sounds like a hell of a lot of fun, and 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 a, and a whole period of your life you can uh, you can look back with fondness, no doubt. And then, you know, you decided to kind of go. Well, I think what the world needs is is some is is some instruments and some sample sets made by me. I mean, that must have been quite a leap of faith because I mean, the technology wasn't really hugely developed. I mean, I guess you must have had to just really uh take a leap of faith effectively to 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 start the whole spectrosonics thing up right
1: yeah well it was um, it was an interesting progression because um most of most of what i was doing uh most of my income came from doing sessions um and then i was also doing i was also working with roland and creating you know creating sounds and instruments and stuff with them so i had both things going i had my steady thing with roland and then I had my session thing, but most of my most of my income was really from sessions. Uh, but what I was finding was, uh, especially around the time that that we did the um, uh, the, the JD eight hundred, the JD nine ninety, and the sample libraries for Roland, we were doing a lot more of those. Um, I was finding more and more that uh, the people that I was wor- I was I was working with. We're more interested in buying an instrument from Roland uh, than actually uh, because because they could get basically they could get like a JV 1080 yeah. and have 500 of my sounds for less than the price of hiring me and all of my gear to make uh,
0: 500 sounds. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, to, to make one sound. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, for 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 a day or for a couple of sounds that are custom. So I, I saw the the trend. The trend was kind of going away from um, having uh, hiring people to create unique sounds, which I, I love doing. But I, so I was basically putting myself out of work. Right. What I was doing for Roland was actually putting uh, putting putting out of putting me out of business in terms of um, the sound design work that I did in 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 sessions, which was a lot of what I did, and, and kind of my calling card. So, uh, and we were creating, I was, I was creating all of these, all the libraries for Roland, all these sample libraries, and we were going all over the world and, you know, working for years, creating all these, these uh, huge libraries. And uh, Roland really didn't know how to sell them or, you know, market them. They, put them, they, they would sell them with the boss socks <laughs> <laughs> at the back of the catalog, something we spent like millions of dollars making. And then they would right. wonder why it didn't sell, um, and they and so we were getting a lot of pressure at, at Roland. So I was I was frustrated because we were doing such high level work, uh, but they didn't understand really what we were doing or um, the val- really understand the value of it. You know, kind of getting getting uh, stuck against some of the being bean counters and
0: well also <laughs> so- a little box of floppy disks is pretty uh, uninspiring on a on a shelf compared to you know something large and hardware i suppose isn't it so you could-
1: right right so they didn't understand the idea that the sounds themselves could be a product mm. uh, the the sounds are just something that you stick in the thing right and, um so and of course my my passion being sound um that was that was something i was always rubbing up against and and they were they always just wanted to you know, they were getting to this thing where they wanted to just release a release a, a, the same version of the instrument kind of every year, but with with uh, different sounds inside. Right. Uh, and so, one of the big successes I had with Roland was convincing him to do the expansion boards, and um, that way, you know, you could buy one keyboard and put boards in it, and yeah. you know, get sounds, and that was that worked out really well. But um, anyway, so I so I was I was really frustrated because I had another series of of sounds that I wanted to do. I wanted to do. Um, I was friends with. I was working with Marcus Miller and and uh, John Patitucci and, and Abe Lavoriel and they were good friends of mine too. And so I wanted to do. Nobody had done a bass uh, sample library, uh, especially with like at that caliber. Mm. And so I, I wanted to do like this legend series for Roland, and. Uh, but I realized uh, that they didn't understand really. They, that wasn't really their business. They didn't really understand it. And so I was complaining to my moaning about this with my with my wife, and um, and she said, uh, and I said, you know, I I got this idea, but I can't use it, and I've got these contacts, but it's it's just a drag. And she said, well, why don't we do it? You know, we you probably know two hundred musicians in LA that would that would buy something like that, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we can just. Uh, we can sell a couple hundred copies, and we'll have enough to buy a new Honda. You know, that was basically the business plan. Right. <laughs> and so was, that was the beginning of Spectrasonics, and so we started um, with uh, five phone lines in our kitchen, and um, and and at the time, uh, we also this this uh, gentleman Bob Daspet, who who um, I was mentoring at, at Roland. He was uh, we had been loaning him out to Hans Zimmer. Uh, basically in, in exchange for these great sounds that Hans was giving um, Roland to use. And so um, Bob was creating a guitar library for Hans. And so he was trying to figure out how to how to sell it. And then these guys came to me uh, from Singapore that had this amazing Asian collection. They had all the amazing um, gamelan orchestras and Chinese operas and stuff coming through Singapore. And so all these things came together like at the same time, and we had these three like incredible products uh, cars,
0: were, they, were cars these all, cars. I'm trying to remember back now uh, most, were these actual programs for samplers or mostly just sort yes, of like actual sampler, so so, so you would pro, you programmed them into was it the Roland series or the uh, Akai series that the, that you did them for mainly
1: we did we did it for all the different different samplers so we right. did it for Sonic and, and emu, Roland mm. Akai, Kurzweil sample cell audio <laughs> so we would make the same product like over and over again um but so that was uh that was that's, the that was the beginning of spectrasonics was we that's, had those three products that's pretty
0: labor intensive i'd imagine were you programming so were you progr- i mean aside from just the key groups were you getting into the synthesis features of the different samplers because i mean obviously the kurtzvall and the Roland's had more synthesis had groovy filters and the Akai's were a bit less right. kind of synthetic or had less synth- synthesis capabilities so you were you were programming. Were there different different libraries for different with the same samples for different uh, samplers? If you see what I'm saying, different sounds.
1: Yes, uh, but but it was frustrating because uh, we couldn't really advertise the features that we could take advantage of in the Kurzweil or Sample Cell or Roland, for example, because most people had Akai samplers. Right. And so so we had to we had to have. Um, Basically, the Akai was was the limit of what you could do synthesis wise or or uh, innovation wise. Even though the curse, uh, t- my-
0: tough break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So
1: that was so that was um, that was actually it's a good point you brought it because that was one of the things that that was frustrating. Once we started Spectrasonics, was we were limited in that way. We had to support all of these different platforms. And we had to only use the lowest common denominator of what the synthesis capabilities were. When my whole interest is in pushing yeah. the envelope of synthesis and creating new sounds and bringing things together, and, and you know, obviously creating stuff you've never heard or uh, pushing the envelope. So that's why uh, when I saw what was happening, uh, we so we did CD-ROMs for a long time from '94 till 2002, wow, and yeah. I think. I think it was in, uh, I think it was around 2000. We were the first company to ever show, this is strange to say, but I was the first person to show, uh, making music on a laptop at the NAMM show. And, um, so I actually did my whole demo only on a laptop, which sounds like nothing now because that's sure. what everyone, but at the time it was pretty revolutionary.
0: What was and, it? Was it like a five forty? Uh, an Apple, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, five forty
0: yeah, uh, LC or something, yeah,
1: something like that. Yeah, it was like really, really. Uh, it was the first one that could basically run a run a software sampler, and um, yeah. So and I showed like our, our libraries using um, using a laptop, and I, so I got really excited. And I, so and we were also working with all of the all the people that were were creating these kind of platforms, um, the, like the Unity DS1 and the Giga Sampler. Yeah. People and basically all these different companies. So I ended up working on so many different samplers for different people and, and consulting for them and giving them advice on you know what uh, what things work and what things and, don't. And in,
0: and in a sort of bizarre way, even though it was going to software, you ended up with then another bunch of different standards and different capabilities yeah. on, acro- across those two.
1: Yeah. yeah, and that's why. And 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 we could see that coming. We could see that there's a, a huge wave of additional platforms coming. And so we wanted to uh, leapfrog that and forget that whole that whole approach. So we never did our libraries and software sampler platforms. We only did hardware, right? And right. we went straight to doing um, large-scale virtual instruments because uh, I could not only design um, the sounds, but I could design the you know really design the interface, the features of the synthesis. And so we we worked with. Um, uh, the French company that does uh UVI and ah, so we yes. basically yeah we basically um, uh, <clears throat> helped them help them develop uh, the UVI engine and then we licensed that from them and that went uh, really really successfully it was it was just because it was really the first it was the first time anybody had had uh, released a product that was cross-platform and multi-platform so you know the idea of vst and um um, cross-platform was
0: was that was that pre-contact as well then or was it way way
1: before contact yeah right yeah and so and i and i wasn't even doing this yet so um and it's funny we came to n i first and um they really had no idea what we wanted to do (laughs) and so uh they never called us back which is kind of funny so, um, yeah, so, so, but the French guys were really excited. They were our distributors in, uh, in Paris. And so we, we worked really closely with them and basically got that platform going. And, um, but they were great because they, they, would, they would allow me to, to add features and, you know, I, I need another envelope, I need the different kind of filter and, um, and they, you know, designing the interface however I wanted it. And so that was uh, Atmosphere trilogy and the original stylus so that right. was we, we in in 2002 and then that's when that's when things really changed for the company Well, it, it's, it's interesting
0: i mean stylus uh i don't know about the rest of the world but certainly in europe it was and still is for many the kind of go-to beat maker you know because it is so flexible yeah. and allows you to combine grooves and synthesis and all kinds of you know slicing and what have you and it, it, it's a very interesting um paradigm and i'm guessing that was that the thing that really took off first for you
1: well the um i think all i mean all the original stylus was big and then the um uh the atmosphere and trilogy were, were equally so and then it was in 2004 that's when that's when we um we decided to go our own way and develop our own engines um because working with licensed technology is pretty limiting uh, you, because you know, it, we don't own the technology, so the French guys had, you know, they wanted to uh, create the Mach Five and yeah. kind of do this stuff with. with, with and it, it
0: can limit both parties because they're going in one direction, you're going in another. It's yeah, yeah.
1: That's basically what happened. It, it was uh, uh, so it made sense for us really to to develop our own our own instruments, and that's what we did. Uh, the first one was South RMX and then that's that's really uh and then that that was a whole another wave that was really huge and yeah and yeah still still going strong
0: I've, st- I've still got stylus on myself so I mean, with all of this kind of exploration in, you know, in cutting edge technology and cutting edge synthesis and, and those techniques, I mean, are you are, are you finding that there are still many boundaries to be pushed or are you still exploring? Because, I mean, there's so much stuff, say, in Omnisphere uh, and Omnisphere 2 that are kind of you compile and you can, you know, inc- include an awful lot of features. Are there techniques in synthesis that you think still have a lot of uh, distance to be explored with? I mean, I know like like FM synthesis, for instance, is is notoriously underutilized because of its difficulty to use. You know, but is it about the interface? I mean, where do you see the most exciting areas of uh, expansion now?
1: Well, I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, room for growth. Uh, one, one, I think one of the big challenges is the CPU power of um, Current computers it, in the last uh, four or five years, we really haven't seen the big leaps that that were happening before. You know, the Moore's Law is pretty much not in play anymore. They're, they're kind of they've they've reached a point where they can't can't put too much more in terms of at the atomic level. So, uh, so I think there's going to be another wave though when we get into this. You know, whenever quantum computing is going to happen when when that sort of thing happens when there's a, a big jump in power then the, a lot of things will open up because uh there are a lot of things that we can do that are amazing but they take the entire power of the computer uh to to uh just play a single voice right uh, and and we we need to be able to play lots and lots of voices uh, in stereo and yeah uh, and is the, and, and is the, of the scary
0: optimization word, isn't it, that kind of you see uh, early demonstrations of software and you're going, wow, that's amazing. And then it's the process from there to the final product for the optimization and that that tends to really delineate what is actually going to happen in the end, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So there's there's some phenomenal things that that, that are possible now just on like, a, you know, a stereo File or or, it, yeah. um, You've or got what
0: a, a brand new Mac Pro with uh, multiple cores maxed out and you can get a really good sounding right. single note. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so I'm looking forward to to when computers really can um, and so, so some of the bottlenecks that that we have um, can be can really increase because it will open up a lot of possibilities. That said, there are a lot of things. Uh, still remaining uh, that that can be explored, so w- that's something we're doing. And uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. It's a, it's a, that's the coolest thing about software making software synthesizers. Really, is that it, the bad part is that it's never done, um, but that's also the good part is that it's it's constantly evolving. Mm. And I think people are starting to see. That's been one of the things that I think that's nice about Omnisphere too. Is people I think are starting to see. That that we're our philosophy is building on what we have, as opposed sure. to constantly um, uh, reinventing it uh, from scratch and giving it a different.
0: I think. I think for me, concept. I think it's that the, the thing that's exciting is that when. Some form of hardware control of some really great software becomes yep. more integrated and more flexible so that it can grow with the software or, you know, it can work both ways. And that's still Absolutely. for me is, is, is not there yet. And that's something that I think probably because for many people, software is fantastic. You just don't get that hands-on kind of feel. I mean, you must get yeah. that all the time. I mean, you're very fluent in oh. it, but you've got this hardware, and there's a different kind of relationship you have with hardware, isn't there?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and it's a, it's really a complicated problem because um, the thing is, is just in terms of, of the market, like what people are are willing to pay for for that hands-on control is so low. Yeah, it really limits the quality of what you can do, or you know, making a business out of it. And, you know, there's people that are people that are doing it. Um, but it's tough to do. It, I think it, it's it's a really tough it's a tough business to do. But, yeah, I love I love uh, hardware integration. I have a, a fantastic Omnisphere template for my sub 37. That's uh, awesome. It's basically I I can control um, all every Everything that you see on the sub 37, I'm controlling an Omnisphere and um it's it gives you a completely it it gives you that experience that you're talking about like where it's it feels like like a hardware instrument
0: yeah it's kind of interesting i think i first discovered that i had a uh, i think it was a novation ks four which has a lot uh-huh. of knobs on it and you could have individual control of all the envelopes and that kind of stuff and it starts to kind of make sense and you're going okay i can reach for that and it translates to the software version i suppose the difficulty becomes is when the software is doing i don't know granular or things that are not on the front panel of an analog subtractive synthesizer that you then have oh, yeah. to kind of open it up
1: right there's a lot of things and, and the problem is too is because uh, i mean we've investigated this a lot Problem is, is, is that once you once you put it in hardware, then you can't change the software, uh, or or that becomes it, the more the more dedicated the hardware becomes, the friendlier it is, but then uh, the less flexible the software can be. So it, it's a it's an interesting problem. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I yeah, absolutely, that's something that that we're uh, very interested in improving. You know, the hard hardware and software connection in in every way that we can um and we've got some cool cool stuff in the works for that
0: well that was going to be my next question because i mean we've got nam coming up real fast we often see you i presume that uh, spectrosonic's going to be there right
1: yes we'll have a booth yes
0: and I, I i'm sure you couldn't tell me or wouldn't tell me if you have anything but what are we are we expect are we going to be seeing anything from you guys that uh that we should come by and swing by and, and check out or are you going to keep it under wraps
1: okay well i had a feeling you'd ask <laughs> um, <laughs> uh so what uh what i will say is we've got some really cool stuff happening in 2016 i'll also say that it's not what people are expecting mm. and i'll also say that it's not going to be at nam okay and that's all i'm gonna say interesting
0: <laughs> I'm guessing <laughs> Nam for you must be a great show because uh, you're not too far away, right? I mean, you're in the in on the right part in the right part of the world. So is yeah, it just a why, it yeah. hop down in the morning, or do you do you come and stay locally?
1: I, I have to stay locally. Yeah, it's yeah. too it's uh, too crazy to get in and out. But yeah, I think this will be my I don't know thirty first Nam or something like that. Wow,
0: it's, that is impressive. I've
1: done way too many of them.
0: It's funny, isn't it? I mean, the Nam thing. When you, the first time you go, and this is something that we've experienced when we take uh, new me- crew members and team members over, the first day they just they are disintegrated. They can't cope with the amount of stimulus. But when you right. get to a, a, be as old as cynical as we are, you kind of that's why you can't remember anybody's name or what you've just said to somebody <laughs> because you have to shut yourself down. Otherwise, you become totally your, your mind goes. You kind of it can drive you crazy.
1: Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty insane. It's like. Um... Yeah, and it's, 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 it is an extra dimension of it for me because everybody, um, because I went to school in Orange County, I see um, classmates and college people. Wow. And, uh, you know, this guy, here's this guy from kindergarten I thought was dead, but he's alive. And, and here's wow. Herbie Hancock. And here's uh, some guy I did a clinic for in Philadelphia. In 1984, <laughs> and he's wanting to talk to me, and yeah. and uh, and everybody I've played, all the musicians I've I've played with, and I want to see and hang, and they're my friends, and all my customers and my distributors and dealers, and it's insane. It's it's totally. I have to I have to kind of <laughs> remove myself for moments because yeah, it's it's pretty uh, overwhelming. I, the first one I did, I was I was uh, 17, wasn't when I went. I snuck in, and. Uh, Printed up um, fake business cards at the local music store. I had a friend who worked there, and so I (laughs) I got a rubber stamp kit, and um, and I and I snuck in and and hung out in the in the Roland booth, and uh, that was when they were introducing the TR808. Wow! So that's uh, that was pretty awesome.
0: Eric, thank you so much for your time, and we've been chatting for ages, and I, I know there's so much more we could cover, but I want to say thank you so much for joining us. It's been great having a, chat, a chance to chat to you, and hopefully we'll uh, see you in uh, LA not, too, soon, not too far away. It was my
1: pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. And so that's it for this week. Uh, Well, this week, I say, for this episode, uh, we will uh, be back with normal service uh, on our usual Wednesdays. I'm not sure when this is going to be out yet, so it might be a surprise for you all. So uh, thank you very much for watching. I want to say thanks again to Eric Persing, Spectrosonics.net. Do check out Omnisphere and all the other instruments, and uh, we'll see you again sometime soon. That's it. Bye-bye now.